Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Lord, we want to acknowledge that words on a page, words spoken in the air will be just that apart from your spirit. Even though, Lord, we believe those, these are your words that you spoke through your apostle Peter to say what the church needed to hear. Yet, Lord, we know even those words will fall on deaf ears and dead hearts apart from your work. And so, Lord, this morning I, I commit myself again to the, the simple task of being a herald of what you've said. And, and today as we seek to apply what you've said to our lives, Lord, we, wanna, we want to ask you to make our hearts soft and receptive to what your word means for us in our lives. And Father, I pray that we would be willing to follow you, willing to surrender, and that we would find great and deep joy in that. So Holy Spirit, please be active here and now as we receive from you what you've said and and consider together what it means for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please have a seat. Today is the second part of a message that we began a week ago. And if you weren't here with us last week, uh, I'll just remind you, all of, the, all of our messages are on our website. So you can go to ebcnipawin.ca. Uh, the full manuscripts are there. You can read them. You can listen to them. The videos are there. And, um, and what we did last week is, is we walked carefully through these seven verses, the ones that we just read together, um, and we did our best to understand what God, through the Apostle Peter, had to say to these Christians reading his letters. And so you'll remember where we're at in, in 1 Peter, is, is Peter's helping us understand what the gospel means for the way that we live with each other. And now he's talking about what the gospel means for marriage and how we live together in marriage. And so last week was really important as we considered just, okay, what does this mean? What does it say? And what does it mean? And then today we're considering what does it mean for us? Now, normally we do that in one sermon and there's some danger in splitting it apart. The danger in splitting it apart is that today you might just think this is just a guy just sharing a bunch of his opinions. And that would be really dangerous. And, and God forbid, literally, that that would ever happen here. I, I hope you know that, that this is just part and parcel of what we did last week. And, and as I prepared this week for this application part of the sermon, I, I, I made frequent reference to, 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 to the passage, to the text, to what we did last week, making sure that what we were doing and saying today was very grounded in the words of God in this passage. And, and so I do believe this is an important part of preaching the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3 or 2 Timothy 4, rather, when Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, he goes on to say, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, which is this idea of, of applying the word to our lives in specific ways. So this is an important part of preaching the word, and it's really anchored to the text of Scripture. And, and so please understand that, that this week and last week are, are really tightly connected. And so I hope you have your Bible. If you've got it, you've got your Bible open. First Timothy 3, you're making sure that what's being said is, is coming from here. And we're going we're gonna to keep our finger in the text. So here's how we're going to do this applying part of, of this message. We're going to look at three big areas that this passage addresses. Marriage, beauty, and strength. And then we're going to touch on what... Uh, what this passage says about those topics to to different people in different categories and 
and, and different relationships. And so we're going to start with marriage. If you've got an outline in your bulletin, you can follow along there. We're going to consider what this passage says about marriage in general. Now, particularly here, we're talking to those who are married, but this is is very applicable even if you're not married. So this is this, this don't just if you're not married here, don't think I can just check out this. This is for you as well. There's a lot here to learn. So let's start, though, by considering specifically what this passage says to those who are married. We can't miss the obvious point that Peter tells wives to submit to their husbands. And this is not unique to Peter. I mean, this is unique in 2024, but this is not unique to Peter. There are four main passages in the New Testament that teach how to do marriage, so to speak. Four main passages in the New Testament addressed to married couples, telling them how to do marriage together. And in three out of those four passages, wives are told to submit to their husbands. Okay, so those, those passages are, are 1 Corinthians 7, and then Ephesians 5, and Colossians 3, and then, and then 1 Peter 3. And there's reference to marriage in other places, but, but as, as if, if I did my homework right, those are the four big ones that, that give specific instructions on marriage. And three out of four. So Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then again, 1 Peter 3.1 here. So here's what we need to recognize. Marriage is a lot more than just authority and submission. Marriage is always a lot more than just one person submitting to another person. But it's never less than that. Marriage is not less than this. This is the biblical vision. The biblical vision for marriage includes wives submitting to their husbands. Now, someone might ask, why do you insist on, on, on taking this so, so literally, so straightforwardly? I mean, isn't a wife submitting to her husband just a cultural practice? Like, that's what they did back then, so he tells them to do it. But, but we don't have to do that anymore. I mean, didn't, didn't Peter just, just a few weeks ago talk about slaves and masters? I mean, clearly that's cultural. That's a cultural practice. So why would we insist that wives still submit to their husbands and we don't insist on slavery anymore? We clearly understand the gospel overturned slavery. Does not the gospel overturn wives submitting to their husbands? That's well, a good question. There's people who argue for that. I've had to read their books in seminary and, and so on. And, and here's the answer. Here's or at least a, a big part of the answer. If you look at how just Peter explains why wives should submit to their husbands, he doesn't explain that in the same way that he explains why slaves need to submit to their masters. Right? That's why we saw, even though the word submit is used there, there's to- totally different relationships and we shouldn't, shouldn't confuse them. But think about how Peter encouraged slaves to submit to their masters. He said, follow in the footsteps of Jesus when he was treated really unjustly. Right? He, he talked about, about follow, following in his steps when Jesus was tried and crucified in a, in a horrible way and how he kept his mouth shut when people lied about him. So as Peter says that, he's acknowledging that slaves and slavery and the conditions that many of those slaves are in was really unjust and really wrong. But he says it, it is a glorious thing to suffer unjustly as Christ did. And that's, that's, that's how he argues for why slaves should submit to their masters in, in that culture. 
He does not use similar rationale for why wives should submit to their husbands. How does Peter, what are the grounds that, that Peter says, or what are the P, grounds that Peter gives for why wives should submit to their husbands? Well, he says it's evidence of a gentle and quiet heart that's beautiful in God's sight. And he says, that's what the holy women of old used to do. Women like Sarah, who lived well before the Roman Empire, well outside of the culture of the Roman Empire. You see, Peter explains it in a totally different way and explains it in a way that that suggests that this is an enduring truth for the people of God. It was true back then. It's true to that present day. And and we see this in some of the other passages. Think about Ephesians 5. People might say, well, doesn't the gospel overturn submission and marriage? If If you go read Ephesians 5, you'll see that the gospel is the pattern for submission in marriage. It's the reason for submission in marriage. Wives submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ and husbands sacrificially lay down their lives for their wives as Christ has done that for his church. And, and, then, and then there in Ephesians 5, Paul explains how this was God's design and intention all the way back at creation when he first made Adam and Eve. So when we take these passages together, we can't say Submission in marriage was a cultural thing for back then, and it's not true for us today. There's people who want that to be true, but that's, you just can't get that in, a, in, a, in a, a reasonable way from Scripture. So the question for us, particularly the question for those who are married, is do you actually believe this? And do you actually practice this? I wonder how many Christians in churches like ours would say, yes, we believe that because it feels traditional and conservative. They'd say, yeah, we believe in biblical gender roles. But when it comes down to how their marriages actually work, how their marriages actually function, they basically operate just like the rest of the world on on feminist principles. I wonder how many Christians treat submission in marriage the way the United States government treats its nuclear weapons. Like they have them, but they really, really hope they never, ever, ever have to use them. I, I know people who talk about submission and marriage like that. Yeah, my, my wife would submit to me if she really, really, really ever really had to, but that's never, ever happened in 40 years of marriage. Like people, people talk that way. But if three out of four marriage passages in the New Testament say that this is something that should happen. Does this really suggest to us that this is like a rare occurrence? It sounds more like something normal, doesn't it? So acknowledging that this is countercultural in 2024, acknowledging that this is, this is one of the truths that makes Christianity stick out from the culture around us. Acknowledging that, I want to ask wives, wives, when is the last time that you submitted to your husband? Not because you agreed with him or thought that his idea was better than yours, but simply because he's your husband and the Bible tells you to submit to him. How far back do you have to think to come up with an example of that? 
Now, ladies, please know, wives, please know, this doesn't mean that you don't tell your husband what you think. This doesn't mean you check your brain at the door. This doesn't mean you don't seek to have an influence on your husband. I mean, think of, think of what Peter says about the way in which your conduct should influence your husband. Peter assumes that wives should be influencing their husbands toward Christ. Wives, you have a powerful role. This is not about being a doormat. Okay, hear this. God made Eve second to help Adam, and that role as a helper calls for action. It calls for wisdom. It calls for diligence. Just read Proverbs 31 for one example of of what that looks like. So wives, your husband needs your voice, your perspective, your your angle on things. He needs you. And yet none of that erases the very plain words of the apostles which teach us that God expects wives to submit to their husbands because that's how God designed men and women and marriage to work together. And this is, it is a good thing. At this point, I want to say to husbands, husbands, do you know, do you really, really know, husbands, that God has given you authority over your wife, not for your benefit, but for her benefit? Do you know that? That's, in the biblical vision, that's what authority is for. And, and why so many people struggle with this is because throughout history, we see a long line of people using authority to serve themselves. And in, in, the, in the biblical vision, and what God has told us, authority is for the other person that, that you now get to serve with your authority. So husbands, do you know that? Are you living with your wife in an understanding way like we looked at in verse 7? Do you think about the impact that your decisions have on her? Do you think, like we said this last week, but it's worth repeating, do you think about what is it like for her to be your wife and to submit to you? Are you using your authority to serve her, to protect her, to help her to thrive? Are you remembering that she's your helper? You you can't do this on your own. Are you seeking her advice, her perspective, and her wisdom? Does she know that she is heard when she speaks? Are you seeking her heart? Are you laying down your life for her and making it easy and desirable for her to submit to you? I hope the answer is yes. See, husbands, if you hear this submission stuff, if you hear wives submit to your husbands and you think, yes, you're totally not getting it at all. If you think this sounds fun, you're you're not getting it at all. This should make you gulp and feel the weight on your shoulders. Because that's what this is about. This is about you, like Christ, sacrificially carrying the heavy weight on your shoulders so that your wife and family can thrive under your care. This is about you being willing to suffer for your wife's mistakes. 
without berating her as a tiny reflection of the way that Christ suffered for us. Now, I really hesitate to share the following story because it's a story from my own marriage, and I do not want to set myself up here as as the guy who gets it and the guy who's doing it right. I've got so much to learn. I'm as convicted as you by these questions I ask. But but sometimes it's helpful to have an example. So here's here's one example of a time in our marriage where I think God helped me live this out, and and it illustrates some things. I, I share this story when I do pre-marriage counseling with people, but there was a day we were on vacation and, and Amy came up, my wife Amy came up with an idea for, for how we could spend that day. I'm not a super creative person. Amy's very often saying, hey Chris, what do you think about this? And, and that's, that's a, a super valuable role that she plays in our marriage. And so she came up with an idea for how we would spend our day and I thought about it and I said, that sounds good. And so then we did it, and it didn't work. It was terrible. We we did not have a good day. And at the end of the day, we were driving home, and Amy said something like, I feel feel really bad. I came up with this idea, and, and the day didn't go very well. And what I said to her is, honey, this is not on you. I made the decision to go and do this. See, that's what, part of what leadership means. The buck stops with you. And so if, it, if that, what I said is, is, is if this day didn't turn out well, that's not your fault. That's my fault. And, and that's just a tiny little example of, of a time when, when I think God helped me to do this, where, where I, I took onto my shoulders the weight of the decision and then the blame for when it didn't work out fine, right? How, how awful would it have been for me then to be like, well, good idea you came up with, Amy. And when... And, and, and so, again, I'm not setting myself up as the guy who always gets it, but that's just one small example of what leadership and submission is for. Husbands, it's about you carrying the heavy load so that your wife can thrive. Your wife will struggle to submit to you at times because she's a daughter of Eve. This side of the fall, her desire will sometimes be contrary to you. So Genesis 3.16 says, there's a reason the Bible has to tell wives to do this. So wives, if you're like, oh, the Bible tells me three times, why is it so hard? That's why it says it three times. But husbands, make it as desirable as possible for your wife to submit to you. Win her heart, earn her trust Make her want to keep on trusting you. Now, there's at least three more hours we could talk about this, and and uh, but let me just let me just call the married men and women in this church to joyfully embrace and actually practice the biblical pattern for marriage. Not just give it lip service, be complementarians in name only, but no, to actually actually embrace this. And just one final word here before we move on. Uh, Don't expect this to be easy. I just want to say this. Marriages go through hard seasons. And sometimes there's a lot of shame in a marriage when, when, when one, of the, one of the partners in the marriage has to go talk to someone outside of the marriage. There's going to be the sense like, oh, we failed. Or, or when a couple needs to sit down with another couple or, or some trusted leaders and, and get help. That, that is not a shameful thing. That is a very, very normal thing. Are you ashamed when you take your car to the shop? Ah, the carburetors. Well, we don't have carburetors anymore. But okay, ah, this. You know, the the engine's leaking. I, I don't know how to fix that. No, like, this, of course, like, there's things that are just complicated, and we need help. And marriage is complicated, and it's okay to need help. So, please know that. Let's talk second here. Uh, well, second, still, we're talking about marriage for those who are married to unbelievers. We want to touch on on this on this aspect here particularly Christian women who are married to men 
who do not believe the gospel. And I don't have a lot to say here because last week's passage is, is, is really just about that. And, and, and Peter affirms that a wife's main allegiance is to Jesus. She is right to try to win her husband to Christ. And he gives her instructions for how to do that, mainly through her life, through her conduct. Now, there's no guarantee here. Salvation is God's business. But God put that man in a house with that woman. And don't be surprised if he uses her conduct to make that man hungry for the Lord. Now, someone asked a great question this week. What if a wife has an unbelieving husband? So she's a Christian. She believes in Jesus. He doesn't. And he doesn't want her to go to church. Does she need to submit to him in that case? Uh, I told you to submit your questions to me. And uh, I think this is an important question because it gets kind of to the core of the issue. How far does submission go? And so to answer this, I would just want to point out that when Peter affirms that a, a, a Christian woman has her first allegiance mainly not to her husband, but to Jesus, that's really countercultural, right? In the Roman world, I mean, it's totally opposite of today. In the Roman world, a husband was like his wife's king, basically. And so Peter is saying that Jesus is Lord above her husband, And just like in the previous weeks, we've seen there are times when submission to humans has to take a back seat to submission to Jesus. I mean, think of Peter's words, we must obey God rather than man. So here's how I understand this. I understand that the command to gather together with with other believers in Jesus, the command to gather, what we call going to church, gathering with God's people, it's a command from the Lord. He said, don't neglect this. It's a command. And so I conclude that a husband does not have the authority to tell his wife not to do something that God has told her to do. Okay, so just let me, let me say this. I think if a wife is being told by her husband, don't go to church, that's a spot where she needs to obey God rather than man. Now, there may be specific situations where she makes a, a different decision temporarily. There, I, I'm, not, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's not maybe particular times and seasons, but I think, I think a Christian woman needs to gather with God's people even if her husband doesn't want her to. And this principle, we can apply it to other situations where a husband's pressuring his wife to sin, for example. She, that is not something she needs to submit to. She submits to Jesus first. Uh, a man does not have the authority to make someone else sin. We submit to Christ first. There's so much more I could say here. And I, I want to talk, I wanted to talk more this morning just about the more personal side of what it might be like to be in a marriage with someone who doesn't share your faith. And I, I had some stuff. Here's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to post it on our blog this week. And so you can go there this afternoon and, and subscribe and it'll show up in your inbox some point this week. But on the church website, we've got a blog and I'm going, to, I'm going to put some of that material there. There's, there's some more to say here. But for those who may be or those who might know people who are in marriages like this, um, there are some real difficulties there. And yet the, the grace of God is, is very, very, very present. Uh, let's talk very uh, next here for those who are unmarried. Still talking here about marriage. Just so you know, we're taking the most time on marriage, and the next two are going to be going to be quicker. But for those who are unmarried, I want to be so careful here because I don't want to heap condemnation or, or even make it feel like like I'm doing that. I don't want to heap pain on those who did not make wise decisions when they got married. 
So, so how do I, how do I not do that while still really encouraging young people who are not yet married to please make a wise decision? And here's, I guess what I would say, those people who did not make wise decisions when they got married would want me to say to the unmarried, please, please, please make wise decisions when you, when you get married. Don't make your life harder than it needs to be. Now, I know that both men and women are prone to making these mistakes, but in my history, I've far more often seen young women settle for a guy just so they can make it and get married, right? Because in our evangelical culture, it's kind of like, until you're married, you haven't really begun life yet, which is totally bonkers. We need to read 1 Corinthians 7 and, I mean, the Bible, but... but um, so I've seen over and over again young women realize too late how challenging it can be to be married to a man who doesn't share their faith or is, is significantly less spiritually mature than they are. So young people, especially those desperate for marriage or, or those even who aren't now but will be in a few years, you need to hear a hard truth that marriage can be more lonely than singleness. I'm not making this up. This comes from many stories that I've watched and walked with. And I know how powerful Satan's temptations are to get people into this kind of thing. Because I felt this temptation. Praise God, I'm not saying this about my marriage, but I felt, prior to, to Amy, I felt this temptation and I've seen it over and over again as I was the young adults pastor in Regina. I watched it happen again and again, how Satan just brings someone across someone's path and, and they get along so well and this other person seems to really get you and they're incredibly good looking and they're even open to hearing you talk about your faith in Jesus in between makeout sessions. And you're convinced that, you know, the Holy Spirit really needs your help to save that person. And if you break up with them, they're never going to find the Lord and all these deceitful lies. So young people, please know God's word is very clear on this. First Corinthians seven thirty nine. she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. It's just what it says. And getting romantically involved with someone who you know you can't marry is literally one of the most foolish things that a person can do. But there's even a more sneaky temptation here. It's to fall for the guy who says he's a Christian. Oh, he says he's a Christian. It checks all the boxes, right? But, but young ladies, I, I want you to just think about this. If 75% of the time that the New Testament talks about marriage, explicitly teaches on marriage, it tells wives to submit to their husbands, then don't you think that you should be looking, one of the main things you should be looking for is a man to whom you can safely submit. A man who has the maturity and the ability to lead you in marriage and is proving that by leading today. You've heard me say this before. This is not a magic ring. This ring does not make anybody grow up. If someone's immature today, they'll be immature the day after they put this on their finger. And I'm talking here primarily to, 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 to young ladies because I've, I've seen just my experience, seen them fall prey to this temptation more often. And so I just ask, what kind of a marriage and what kind of a life do, do you really want to have? 
men can be tempted in the exact same ways. And so I just, I want to encourage those who are not married and who, who hope to be, to look at the biblical pattern for marriage. What, is, what does the Bible present as a pattern for marriage? And work backwards and look for the things that will produce that today. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this kind of stuff on February 14th. So come on out to the dating workshop. Okay. Beauty. I'm going to move through this as fast as we could. We had a full service this morning. I'm going to move through this, like I said, but try not to rush. But we're not going to linger as long over these next two points. Beauty. We could say a lot about the issue of beauty. But let's just remind ourselves, verse 3 and 4, what it says, First Peter 3, 3 to 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So first, I want to speak to women here. The challenge here for women is that you would truly believe this. This is not just a fact for you to acknowledge in your head. This is a truth that should shape your heart, your life. Do you know, ladies, do you really believe that the living God who made you highly values the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit? And does that mean more to you than the opinion of the men who he made or some of the men whom he made? So women, how might you cultivate an appreciation for this? How might you cultivate a lifestyle that prioritizes inner beauty? So please hear the reminder again from last week. We touched on this. The Bible does not say outer beauty is a bad thing. Okay? Think of like 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen 15. talks about a woman's hair being her glory. Like the Bible celebrates physical beauty in, in, in its appropriate place. But, but, but there's a priority here. Because as we looked at, physical beauty fades. Inner beauty doesn't. So here's an evaluation question. How much time in a day do you spend working on, focusing on, or thinking about external appearance? How much time in a day do you spend working on, focusing on, or otherwise cultivating inward beauty? And does the relative time spent working on both reflect biblical priorities? When I talk about cultivating inner beauty, you could think about time spent in God's word, reading or meditating on it, talking to your heavenly father, growing together with your family in Christ, or other ways that you're deliberately growing on the inside. Does your life and, and the amount of time spent reflect biblical priorities? Are you paying attention to the beauty that's going to last. It's so hard to think of this when you're, when you're young and, and healthy because when we're young, we think we're going to be always that way. But our bodies wear out. I'm not very old. In my life, though, I've met people who had perfect-looking faces and bodies and hearts that were so hideous you wanted to, to get away from them. And I've also met people whose bodies have been torn apart by disease or age, had no physical beauty to speak of, but their inner beauty made them literally shine. What should we focus on? And it's not bad to have both. Please hear that. 
but what should we focus on? And please hear that this isn't just about the future. This is something that came out of our small group discussion on Wednesday. Our passage talks about the profound effect that inner beauty can have in drawing a husband to Christ. But if it can do that for a husband, who else can that do that for? So, so the question that, that one of the, the women in my small group asked is, is for the women in our church to consider, who is your inner beauty drawing to Christ today? What, 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 a, what an awesome thought. What a, what a power that is in each of us to, to be attractive for the sake of Christ, but particularly women in, in ways unique to them. This is so countercultural in our society, which has taught us that a woman's value depends on her sexual attractiveness. That's how our culture assesses whether women are valuable or not. And so clothing styles continue to get smaller and more revealing and and younger women in particular feel so much pressure to dress in alluring ways in hopes of being noticed and desired sexually by men because that's where they're taught that's what they think their worth comes from and this passage is calling women of all ages to flip that script around sisters of all ages i urge you to deliberately and intentionally pursue the inner beauty that is precious in God's eyes. And just just look at how God might use that for his glory. Quick word for men here. Beauty, we've looked at what that might mean for women. Let's think about what that might mean for men. Men, our culture has conditioned you, whether you know it or not, to think that certain things are beautiful and certain things aren't. Our culture has supplied you with a steady stream of unrealistic expectations. I mean, just like you can't look at an insurance ad without seeing a relatively unrealistic pictures for how women are supposed to look, how women are supposed to act, how women are supposed to interact with you. Brothers, you probably believe more lies about women right now than you know. Because it just comes at us. It's just in the water. And this passage, brothers, is calling you to cultivate an appreciation for real beauty. Inner beauty. That will require discernment. That will require you filtering the kinds of messages you're receiving when you open up the flyers or unlock your phone or even, and this is true, brothers, even if you're not watching anything inappropriate. You still got to filter. Because even in stuff that's appropriate, there's still these cultural conditioning things going on. But how much worse is it when it comes to stuff that is inappropriate? Brothers, flee from pornography. It is destructive to you and to the women around you in more ways than you know. Brothers, throw your phone in the river rather than use porn one more time. I mean that. It would be way better for you to do that. Start now to detoxify from the exploitive, abusive poison that you've been inhaling. I hope this isn't too personal to share here, but one of my favorite things that I see when a guy comes off porn, because God's given me the privilege of walking with a number of guys over the years, and one of my favorite things to see is after a few weeks, he actually starts to see the women around him. And he actually begins to see people, sisters, not just bodies and objects. And he begins to appreciate true beauty without craving it and needing to desire it for himself. Brothers, there is freedom to be found in learning to value what God finds valuable. 
ask God to give you this sense and do whatever you must to cultivate an appreciation for true beauty. Third stop this morning, strength. There, there's, there, there's a lot here. I know that's like pretty punchy and I'm just, as I'm preaching, I'm like, man, this should have been a, a series um, in, its, in its own. But we're, we're going we're gonna to move through this third point here and it's all on the website if you want to go back and read this or spend some more time in it later on. In verse 7, as we think about strength, God, through Peter, calls husbands to show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. Now, last week, I talked about the fact, in general, there's no denying men in general are physically stronger than women. And someone actually told me they went and looked it up just to make sure. And like, it's, I mean, they've studied this as if we needed studies, but it's true. Like pound for pound, weight for weight, muscle for muscle. Like there's just, there's men's and women's bodies are different and men are stronger. That's why we have or had separate sports leagues. And, and Peter here, as he tells men to show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel, Peter's reflecting a very distinctly Christian idea that we don't just honor strength and that weakness is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, in the kingdom of God, think about the ethics, the kingdom of God, the last shall be first, the lowest shall be the greatest, the least shall be the greatest, and those weaker are to be shown greater honor. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. So this is an important message in the ancient world where a man's strength gave him permission to run roughshod over his household and do whatever he wanted with no accountability. And this is an important message in the modern world where masculine strength is often treated as a bad thing or it gets abused the way that it was in the ancient world. Or we just pretend it's not even there. The biblical picture that emerges here is that God has given men strength and they're to use that strength to create an environment of safety and honor for the women in their lives. So men, let's talk to you directly first about this here. I said a few things last week, but I'm going to probe a little bit deeper. Verse 7, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. And show your wife honors the weaker vessel, quote, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We're going to see here just in a week or two how this idea of your prayers being hindered comes from Psalm 34, which Peter quotes here. And the idea is that God closes his ears to those who do evil. So not honoring your wife is evil and God won't listen to your prayers. That is only a motivation to you, brothers, if what? If you actually pray and actually want God to hear your prayers. See, this is, this is only a scary thought that God would turn his face against you and your prayers would be hindered for the way you treat your wife. That's only a scary thought to you if God actually means something to you. So men, is, is that you? Does, does, does verse seven land on you and make you go, oh, wow. If it doesn't, please be afraid and repent and seek a heart change from the living God. With that being said, brothers, let me call you. Use the strength God has given you to create an environment of safety around you. Let the women in your life, not just your wife, not just your wife, let the women in your life, every woman with whom you interact, 
feel safe. Be safe in your presence. This is one reason you got to stop using porn. Make sure that they know that your strength will be used for them and not against them. In the Middle Ages, this idea of masculine strength was a part of the system of chivalry. Today, when we think of chivalry, we think of a guy holding a door for a girl or giving up his seat for a lady. And, and sadly, some guys never do this unless they're trying to flirt. So, so this, this came out as we talked in, on Wednesday in our small group that we think of chivalry as a way to flirt with a girl. And then once, once she's, you know, she's your girlfriend or, or your wife, then you, you can stop doing that kind of stuff. And that's so wrong because here's the ancient understanding is this, this, this idea of chivalry was developed. These practices were a part of the way that warriors used their strength to honor the women around them. So think of the knights and the chivalric system. These were powerful men used to bloodshed and battle and the sight of severed limbs, gore and think of the most violent movie you've ever watched and they were right in the middle of that and they would come back to the castle and treat the women there with dignity and honor and respect. Holding a door for a woman is a way of saying, my strength is not a threat to you. You're safe in my presence. I will use my strength to show you honor and provide you with safety. So brothers, hold the door. Give your seat up to a lady if there's no place for her to sit. Carry the heavy grocery bag. Go out in the cold to start the car. Do the hard jobs, not because you're flirting, but because this is what men do. And like I said last week, dads, teach your, teach your boys to do this. Teach, teach your boys to treat little girls differently than they treat little boys. I'll never forget the day I came home from school and told my mom that I had kicked a girl. Let's just say I never did that again. <laughs> and, and, and we need to teach our kids that kind of stuff. Now just a word for women here. And there's a lot we could say, but let's just ask this question. What if your husband is not doing this? Or maybe if this isn't you, maybe it's someone you know. What if there is a marriage that you know of in which a man is using his strength to hurt and to harm? So I pointed to this question last week. Should a wife submit to her husband even if he is physically abusing her? You know what's really sad is there's some people who say yes. I've just showed you my cards. Hope it's not a surprise. I just heard another story just this past week about a woman who went to her pastor to talk about an abuse situation and she was basically told shut up and take it. There are church circles where if a woman is being beat up by her husband and she leaves him, she will get in trouble, not him. Like that's just that's just really heartbreaking. Let me point you to a little known but very helpful passage in the Old Testament. It's not about marriage, but it helps us think this through. Deuteronomy 23, 15 to 16. You shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. 
So this is about slaves and masters. Think about this. Slaves were supposed to submit to their masters. But if one ran away, you weren't supposed to grill them. You weren't supposed to ask for two or three witnesses. You weren't supposed to be like, well, is he really treating you that bad? If, if, if things were bad enough that that slave ran away, you just let him live with you. Your default mode was to provide safety. Now, if that's true in that situation, how much more in the case of a, of a wife who's seeking safety from her husband? It should just be obvious to us that if a woman needs safety, she needs to get out of harm's way. And any one of us in the church should be ready to provide a place of safety to a woman who needs it. Now, I want to acknowledge at this point, we need to approach these situations with carefulness. Here's some tensions we need to be aware of. On the one hand, we need to recognize some awful truths. Most cases of domestic abuse or intimate partner violence, as as it's called these days, most cases go unreported. So if we hear a woman saying that she's being abused physically or otherwise, by her husband or by her man, we should not just assume she's making it up because most of the time it goes unreported. It actually takes a lot of courage to speak up. On the other hand, false accusations do happen. And, and particularly as some people define the word abuse so broadly that basically any time a husband is less than perfect, he's guilty of abuse and his wife is justified in leaving him. And I think we need to acknowledge both of these can be realities. So we need to be very careful and weigh each situation carefully, not on some worldly definition of abuse, but on just what the Bible says. The Bible's got to be what, 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 what helps us assess every individual situation, but let us never hesitate to provide safety and shelter to those who need it. So, so women, I'm saying to you, you do not need to stay with a man who is using his body to hurt you. And, and, and I believe there are cases where even if the pain that he's inflicting is verbal and emotional, you might need to get away to safety for a time, even, even if it's just for a time and maybe longer As a church, we cannot tolerate the use of masculine strength to bully or intimidate or cause harm. God forbid that we as a church would ever have to deal with a situation like this, but if we ever did, may God grant us the wisdom and the mercy to protect the vulnerable and provide safety for those who need it. I'm sure, in fact, I'm quite sure that there's a lot more we could say about this. If you still have or because of this, if you have questions or things that you want to talk about more, I I, want to hear. There's a lot. I had a bunch of stuff here in this morning for parents that I I took out and we're going to talk about it next week at the parenting workshop. But let's just end very briefly here, very briefly with a call that we would live out these truths together as a church. And not just this last point about strength, when it comes to marriage and beauty and strength and everything that, that 1 Peter 3, 1-7 tells, tells us, these truths are not just for individuals. These truths are not just for families. These truths are for us as the people of God. Every husband, every wife, every family has blind spots and shortcomings. We need each other. Especially some situations more than others. I grew up with a single mom. I needed other men in my church to show me what it meant to be a man. And I know as a dad today that I, I, don't, I can't show my kids everything there is to know. 
My kids need some of you in their lives. We need each other. And this isn't just about kids. This isn't just about families. This is about each one of us. You know who we need most of all, though? And this isn't just a cliche thing to say at the end of a sermon. This is just, this is the truest place we could end. We need Jesus. Because Jesus is the only perfect example of this. Jesus is the perfect husband who nourishes and cherishes his bride. Jesus is the one who lays down his life to give her safety. Jesus is the one who we see as we sang, and we're going to sing again here in a moment, the perfect blend of strength and kindness. All that we need, not just as an example, but practically in our lives, what we need is found in Christ himself. And as we chase after, as we pursue Christ together, we will find all that we need to be a community of faith, a community of of belief that honors marriage, treasures beauty, and stewards strength. So let's look to Christ together now as I pray for us and then as the team comes up and we sing, Jesus, strong and kind. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you'd help us to process all the, the heavy stuff in, in these past couple weeks. And as we process that, Lord, don't let us do that apart from you. Jesus, you're the perfect man. You're the perfect husband. You're the perfect example. And not just that, Lord Jesus, today you're caring for your church. From heaven you came and sought her. With your own blood you bought her. And you are nourishing and cherishing us today. So as we consider, Lord, what your word says about marriage and beauty and strength, keep our eyes on the cross and the empty grave and the throne room in heaven where you intercede for us. Oh, in that day so soon that you come back like you promised. Until then, shape us each into your image, I pray. I ask this, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. Team, why don't you come on up?